Now, I don't need to convince you that zombies are distasteful, horrifying, and violent creatures. As they stagger from the grave, their rotting flesh emits a foul reek. In the dark, they grope with cold, bony hands, searching for victims to devour or to add to their decomposing numbers. In fact, the luckiest victims of zombie attacks are those who are eaten immediately. That would be preferable because those who escape with even the slightest, even the smallest zombie bite become infected and soon encounter an entirely new degree of horror. Within hours following their deaths, their bodies will reanimate into a new generation of walking dead. Now, we also call them the living dead because any semblance of human rationality or emotion has left them. They're nothing but a putrid horde of corpses marching relentlessly toward their prey or perhaps lurking in the shadows waiting to unleash hell on anyone unfortunate enough to cross their path. Zombies, you must understand, are walking carcasses. They don't even know that they're dead. Threatening them will not make them go away. Fighting them will ultimately prove futile. If you're spotted by even one zombie, he'll surely let out his trademark moan and alert every other zombie in the vicinity to come and join in the kill. I assure you that there's only one reasonable response to these ghouls, and that is to run, and to run fast. They show no pity. They feel no pain. They're nothing but a flesh-eating plague. And yet they were once human. Even now they're almost human. They look so much like us in form and in posture, and perhaps this is what makes the thought of zombies so terrifying. Perhaps this is why the zombie is a perfect subject for horror books and films. Now, surely none of us would ever want to encounter such a horrific creature, though I doubt that any of us uh, here are really too worried about a zombie attack. As far as we're concerned, zombies are a thing of fiction, so it might shock you, it might surprise you a bit to hear me say that I think we live in a world occupied by the walking dead. In fact, I would suggest that you were once counted among them, that you once marched amidst their festering ranks, dead, lifeless, before you even had a chance at life. Now, personally, I'm not a big fan of zombie films or zombies in general. I find the subject to be rather disgusting, but I bring it up only because the Bible addresses this very subject. And if you don't believe me that the, that the walking dead live among us, then I want to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, and we will read verses 1 through 10 and see for ourselves. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, before we go any further, I want to invite you to a word of prayer. 
Heavenly Father, we ask that you guide us and lead us in this word. We know that your word is God-breathed, that it is useful for correcting us, for teaching us, for transforming our hearts. So we ask that you would help us to understand this word and apply it today. Amen. Now, according to this text, there are really only two spiritual conditions in which it is possible to live. Spiritually speaking, you are either a walking dead man, a zombie, if you will, or a living being, restored, resurrected, transformed into something fully alive and well. And our text today communicates these two very important ideas. So I really only have two points today. The first point will elucidate the reality of spiritual death. The second point will elucidate then the reality of spiritual life given by the grace of God, by his power demonstrated in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, the first point is found in verses 1 through 3. Now, the idea of these verses is simply this. The human spiritual condition is one of death and sin. Okay, the, the human spiritual condition is one of death and sin. And when a person is spiritually dead, he does not know God, he does not love God, and he certainly does not desire to serve God. When a person is spiritually dead, according to the text, he is an object of wrath. He is by nature destined for destruction by the righteous wrath of God. Now, if we want to understand who the Apostle Paul is speaking to here in this text, when he says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, we simply have to go back a little bit and look at the context of the book of Ephesians. Now, here the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. Okay, this is a church that was started, and we, you can look at the history of how this church developed if you go back to, to Acts chapter 19 and read about the circumstances surrounding the, the, the beginnings of this church. This is a church that consisted of Jews and Gentiles, or non-Jews, who had come to faith in Christ. So these are, are, are pagan peoples as well as Jews who had converted to Christianity. So when the Apostle Paul says you, when he's referring to you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, he's speaking to former spiritual zombies. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. So again, he's, he's referring to, to former spiritual zombies. So again, this text is presenting us with two options. Either we were spiritual zombies once dead in our transgressions and sins, or we are spiritual zombies now dead in our transgressions and sins. In either case, spiritual zombies are fairly easy to recognize by certain visible signs. Now, according to verse 2, if you take a look at verse 2, the walking dead have a commander who leads them, who guides them in disobedience. And this leader is known as the prince or the ruler or spirit of rebellion. Okay, it depends on what translation you're looking at here, but he's the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the prince of the kingdom of the air. Elsewhere in scripture, he's simply referred to as Satan, the adversary, he who rebels against God. And Satan is quite content to work in the hearts of spiritual zombies as he leads them in disobedience. But you need to remember that the prince of the power of the air is still only a prince. He's not the ruler of the universe. He's not the king of kings. That title is reserved for Christ, who is exalted to the right hand of God, who now reigns from heaven. Jesus is the ruler of the universe. Satan is just a mere prince, you see. Now, the evidence of spiritual death in those who are disobedient, those who are being led astray by this prince or ruler of the, the power of the air, the evidence of spiritual death in these people should be rather obvious. 
The Walking Dead will most likely think like dead men, and they will most likely act like dead men. Spiritually speaking, they don't function correctly. In other words, they don't do what they were created to do. They don't honor God. Their actions and thoughts are confused. Now, this doesn't mean that they are incapable of doing good. The Bible speaks of God's common grace, which upholds the universe, which keeps us from utter self-destruction. If you want to read more on that, look at Romans chapter 1 and 2 that talk about this idea of God's common grace, the idea that we have a sense of God, a sense of God's law that's, that's ingrained in us. So there are spiritually dead people out there who live as if they are very much alive. But the point I'm trying to make is that when a person is spiritually dead, he is unable to see beyond himself. His actions don't flow from his love for God. He doesn't recognize God as the source of his knowledge. He doesn't recognize God as the source of his love or goodwill. Rather, he invents philosophies or or religions or ideologies that put him at the center of the universe and that mock the creator and sustainer of life. So no matter the good that might come from the spiritually dead man, he lacks proper knowledge, knowledge of and relationship with the God who is the source of all good. No matter how he appears on the outside, he is still dead on the inside. And according to this text, the spiritually dead are exactly that. When the text says you were dead, it's referring to an absolute and total corruption of the spirit which disables any possibility of self-resuscitation. The condition of the walking dead is truly that bad. So when the text uses the word dead, it means dead. Now, some of you may have seen the film the Princess Bride, or perhaps you've read the book. You know the story, the, the, the Princess Bride. It's a classic comedic fantasy story about a young hero named Wesley who falls in love with, with a young woman named Buttercup. But before Wesley can, can marry Buttercup, he has to go off across the sea to seek his fortune. So Wesley leaves to seek his fortune. And during that time, Buttercup is taken captive by this unscrupulous prince named Humperdinck. She's taken to to his palace, and and he's going to force her into marriage. But at some point during the story, Wesley returns to rescue Buttercup. But before he can even rescue her, he's also captured by Humperdinck, and he's taken down into the pit of despair. Do you remember this? The, The pit of despair where he's tortured to death by Humperdinck. And so this the, the prince uses this life-sucking machine to literally suction the life out of Wesley. And later on, when, when, when all hope seems lost, Wesley's friends come and find his body. And they take him to a, a kind of miracle worker, a sorcerer, with the hopes that this sorcerer can somehow revive their friend. And when the, the sorcerer or magician looks at Wesley's body... He makes this distinction, explains to Wesley's friends that that there's a difference between all dead and mostly dead. Now, when somebody is all dead, the only thing you can do really is go through their pockets and look for loose change. But if someone is only mostly dead, then there's a possibility of resuscitation. And so with the use of a a chocolate-covered miracle pill, this wizard or sorcerer is able to revive Wesley And subsequently, he goes and and rescues Buttercup from the prince, and the two live happily ever after, and it's a wonderful story. But unfortunately for us, that's not our situation. Now, some will claim that our spiritual condition is a lot like 
Wesley's physiological condition. They will claim that man is not all dead. He's just kind of dead. He's just a, a, a little bit dead. Maybe he's even mostly dead, but he can still revive himself by his own power. He can still somehow save himself. These people will claim that man only appears dead, kind of like Pastor Jim, who's sleeping over here in the, in the front row. But see, that's not what the text is saying. It's not saying that we can somehow revive ourselves. What it's saying is that we are incapable of raising ourselves up from our spiritual grave. Our condition is that bad. As is, apart from Christ's work in our lives, we are by nature objects of God's righteous wrath. This is what we might call, you could call it the the, the doctrine of total depravity, if you want, the, the doctrine of, of radical corruption. But, but the idea is that we can't revive ourselves. Our condition is that bad. And that's the bad news. But there's good news as well. And that takes us to the second part of this passage. We're going to be looking now at verses 4 through 10. Of course, the good news is that by the power of God that raised Christ from the dead, by God's grace we accept in faith this, this work of Christ, we can have resuscitation to life. So verses 4 through 10 bring us to the second point. Spiritual resurrection is possible. Not by anything we do, not by the use of, of, of chocolate-covered miracle pills, but by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. What we've already seen is that a dead man who's been embalmed who's been sealed in a wooden box, who's been buried in the ground, does not reanimate himself. He does not break through his coffin and dig himself out of his own grave with his own two decomposing hands. He doesn't get up, brush himself off, and go back home as if nothing ever happened. Now, we can all recognize the impossibility of raising oneself from the dead, and I think this is why the analogy of spiritual death used in this text is so Fitting. Verses 4 through 10 show us how God works in spite of this seemingly impossible situation. And understand here, I'm focused on this idea of death, and I keep bringing us back to this idea of spiritual death because I want you to marvel at the greatness of God's grace in bringing us back to life. When we can make that contrast and we can see where we've been and where we are, where we're going. God's response to us is one of love, according to this passage. It's one of mercy. You see that that type of language used. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God, who is rich in grace, who is rich in mercy, who is rich in kindness, saved us by the work of Christ on the cross. And similar language is used in the book of Romans, where it says that while we were still sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You have the same image of grace. While we were powerless to save ourselves, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, these texts imply a radical change brought about by the radical love of God. Verses 6 and 7 talk about how God raised us up and seated us in the highest heavens. And again, this indicates a radical change. It's the difference between night and day. It's the difference between the deepest hell and the highest heaven. And all of this for the celebration of God's grace now and in the ages to come. It should be clear that the concept of God's grace, again, occupies a central position in these verses. And the contrast that this text gives us between the conditions of spiritual death on the one hand and spiritual life on the other cannot be overstated. 
if you can imagine the disgust that you might feel in the presence of a rotting corpse, and take a moment to imagine that. Imagine walking into your home and finding a rotting corpse filled with maggots, decaying, stinking. If you can imagine the disgust that you might feel in the presence of such a corpse, you can begin to imagine the disgust with which God views sinful human beings. And if you can imagine the grief you might feel upon discovering that this this dead body is in fact the body of a loved one, you will likely begin to glimpse the grief that God feels at knowing that the spiritually dead men who occupy this world are his beloved creation. By nature of God's moral perfection, he must be disgusted by our sin. God can look at the very best of us and see through our facade. He sees the sin that dwells in our hearts. This is why Jesus, in in, in Matthew chapter 23, could say to the morally upright religious leaders of his day, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. Now remember then, in the first century, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees were seen by the people as morally perfect. They followed the law to a T. They were exemplary citizens, but God was not impressed. Their righteous acts and our righteous acts cannot cover up the sin that festers in our hearts. God is not impressed with spiritual corpses, with zombies. Now, we like to think that we can construct for ourselves a kind of ladder to heaven, right? This kind of beautiful golden ladder, ladder reaching to the throne of God. And each rung contains the good works you must do to advance. So on one rung you have peace and another, you know, temperance and and brotherly love. And you have patience and generosity and piety and faithfulness and all of these things. And so up we go, climbing the ladder to heaven, the ladder of good works. Up we go. And at the end of our lives, we will find that we made a good amount of progress. The only problem is that this ladder we climb has been falling all the while through an infinite space away from God's throne. Any progress we make is lost as we plunge downward away from the light of heaven. Again, as the text says, it is by grace you have been saved by faith, through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is not from yourselves. Now, imagine a man in desperate need of heart surgery. Okay, this man is going to die if he does not get a surgery immediately. His arteries are clogged. His heart is in terrible shape. Now, this man has no prior surgical training. He has no knowledge of physiology. In fact, he's not even really sure where his heart is located in his chest cavity. He he knows nothing. But rather than go to the hospital and receive care from a trained surgeon, he decides to perform an open-heart surgery on himself with some large wooden clumsy spoons and tools he finds in his own kitchen. Now, his chances of success are zero percent, right? His chance of success is zero. There's no possibility of success. Our do-it-yourself surgeon will die. There's no other possibility. You see, we have absolutely nothing about which to boast. God is the author of our lives, the author of our salvation, the author of every good work prepared in advance for us to do. God's work is one of salvation by grace. God must fix the problem. And our responsibility is one of spiritual humility 
and a response of faith, faith in the work of Christ. Now, everyone here today fits into one of the following two categories. Either you are a spiritual zombie or you were a spiritual zombie. But we've all been there, right? We all know about this zombie condition. Now, if you are a spiritual zombie, the text presents us with a very simple solution. Acceptance of God's grace by faith, by trusting in Jesus who saves you by the grace of God, by repentance of sin, turning to Christ, you can receive salvation from your sins, the sins that separate you from God. You can be reanimated. You can be brought back into new life in Christ. It's really that simple. However, for, for those of you who were spiritual zombies, who are now alive in Christ, those who are disciples of Christ, who are following Christ today, there are several applications for you based on this text. And the first thing is this. Never forget what you once were. Never forget what you once were. Never forget what you used to be, a spiritual corpse, an enemy of God. You may be a Christian, but you still carry the scars of your former way of life. You still struggle against your old nature. Now, we've been redeemed by Christ, but we haven't been glorified yet. We still live in a fallen world, and old habits can be hard to break, right? Now, I'm not suggesting that zombie-like behavior is permissible in any way. What I'm saying is that we need to stay humble. The church, this congregation, is made up of ex-zombies. Ex-zombies who are used to, to, to interpreting the world through the eyes of spiritual corpses. And with that said, I exhort you to to treat one another with patience, to serve one another with humility. When you have a problem with someone in the church, remember, he used to be a spiritually dead man, a a walking corpse. And yes, there's a time for rebuke and correction. These things are sometimes necessary, but remember what you once were. Never forget what you used to be. The second thing we ought to remember is this. Don't be surprised if you are attacked and devoured by zombies. Don't be surprised if you are attacked and devoured by zombies. That's what they do, right? And what I mean is this. If we live in a world dominated by spiritually dead people, then don't be surprised if you find yourself in conflict with the ideas and the priorities of the world. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say that if you haven't been attacked by zombies lately, it might just be that they think you already are one, and they have no reason to attack you. It should not surprise us that the values of the dead are logically opposed to the values of the living. It should not surprise us that people who reject Christ will also reject Christians. And you can go to John 15, 20 if you want more on that. Jesus said to his disciples, if they persecute me, they'll persecute you as well. If they don't like me, they're not going to like you. You see, you need to understand that if you speak of God's grace, if you proclaim the gospel, if you stand up for the innocent, if you defend the life of unborn children, if you live in sexual purity, if you respect the authorities God has placed over you, and if you give any kind of argument whatsoever for the existence of any kind of absolute truth, you will be despised by the spiritually dead. You see, we live in a world where people's ethical and epistemic faculties are so convoluted that they celebrate perversion as progress. And for more on that, you can go to Isaiah 5, verses 20 and 21. This is nothing new. The the prophets were talking about this thousands of years ago. They call evil good and good evil, said Isaiah. 
So if you've been made alive by Christ, if your mind has been regenerated, if you are doing the good that God has prepared for you to do, you can expect to be reviled. Now, the third and final thing I'd like to mention is much related to these, these previous applications. And, and it's this. Here's the third, third thing. Do not despise those among whom you once lived. Do not despise those among whom you once lived. Now, it's easy to look on others with disdain and to think to ourselves, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy over there. If you've ever read the newspaper, if you've ever turned on the evening news, you know the kind of people I'm talking about. Perverse people who have done sick things. Now, where I live in Lyon, we're located right near a, a metro line. The metro is, is like a, a subway, an underground train. And so oftentimes I'll use the metro if I'm going into to the city for a meeting or a Bible study in the evening. And when I'm coming back, oftentimes late at night, and it's not, not even really that late, 10, 10.30 or 11 o'clock, already you see this kind of thing. People already plastered drunk. People behaving in promiscuous ways. People exhibiting this kind of um, zombie behavior. And I'll confess that there are times when my heart is not right toward other human beings because I think I would never be that foolish. I would never be that lazy. I would never be that crude or perverted. I could never possibly oppose the realities that should be so obvious in this world. And what happens is that I go beyond simply condemning the behavior and I start to despise the person. And this is where repentance is in order. You see, this text is not a call to arrogance or pride, but a call to spiritual humility. Remember that it is by God's grace alone that you have been saved. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. And so by the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, by the riches of his glorious grace, we too can be resurrected. We who were once zombies, spiritual cadavers, Walking corpses can be resurrected. We can be regenerated. We can be transformed into beings who live in the fullness of God's grace, who live in this world with hope for the world to come. You see, the zombies of horror films may be a thing of fiction, but the existence of spiritual zombies is a reality. And now that we know a little bit more about these walking dead, I hope we're all more prepared to confront these realities. You see, the biblical response is not to fear them, and it's certainly not to fight them. The biblical response is not to live in shame over what we once were, but rather to celebrate the cross. You see, the biblical response is to point people to the grace of God that cleanses us and that regenerates us to life in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us in applying this. Lord, we know that we have all been spiritual zombies, walking dead men, but it is by your grace we have been saved and brought out of that. Help us to accept that and live in that each day, in that reality, and help us to proclaim that good news to others. Amen.